This episode of The Bestseller Experiment is brought to you by a sponsor, ProWritingAid. The official editing software of The Bestseller Experiment, ProWritingAid is so much more than a grammar checker. It's a style editor and writing mentor all in one package. Once more, ProWritingAid integrates with Scrivener and Word, Google Docs, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, OpenOffice and Outlook. It's designed for the smarter writer, which is all of you. And as a listener of The Bestseller Experiment, you can get a whopping 20% off right now. Get your discount today over at ProWritingAid.com forward slash bestseller. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy! And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we discover makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe and thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to episode four where we're going to explore a little trip that Mark had over the, the last weekend. Mark, you headed to an amazing festival called the Galantz Fest, is that right? Yeah, Glantz are the publishers of my book, Robot Overlords, available in all good bookshops now. And uh, the, basically the, the premium, premier science fiction and fantasy publisher in the UK, and they have an incredible roster of authors. And this is Glantzfest's third year, and it's proven to be a huge success. They're the only uh, publisher in the UK that has their own festival, and there were some incredible names there. And I got to record quite a few of them and, and talk to them about their writing technique and uh, what inspired them to become a writer and all sorts of exciting stuff that hopefully will inspire our listeners out there. It certainly inspired me. Absolutely. So give us some of the names that we're going to be having coming up on on future episodes of the bestseller experiment. Uh, well, I got, I got chatting to uh, Joe Abercrombie, who's a cracking fantasy author who uh, I remember his first book coming out uh, 10 years ago now, which is terrific. We have Ben Aronovich, who started out as a, a bookseller for Waterstones and is now uh, a regular best-selling author. Uh, Scott Lynch, uh, again, his first book came out about 10 years ago, a book called The Lies of Locke Lamora, which is just fantastic. And Elizabeth Bear, who's written more uh, science fiction fantasy novels than I have hot dinners. So um, there's, there's tons and tons coming over the horizon at us so uh, but today we kick off with a very special author the one and only joanne harris who's probably best known for her huge bestseller chocolat which was made into a movie with uh, johnny depp uh, more recently for galantz uh, she's published a book called the gospel of loki which is a fantastic fantasy look at uh, the uh, the, the Norse legends. And um, if you love, if, even if your only experience of, of Loki is in the Marvel movies, check this out because it's, it's just terrific. Um, so it was incredibly busy weekend. Uh, loads of panels. Uh, load, they have a special sort of mini writers festival there as well, which is, uh, you know, for, for about 
12 quid you get to do sort of speed dating with with authors where you pitch them your idea and they'll <laughs> give you feedback it's just amazing uh, with the likes of joanne harris and you know joe abercrombie and people like that it's just incredible um so i was able to grab people for sort of 10 15 minute interviews in the labyrinthine back corridors of foils in charing cross road so uh um let's uh shall we have a listen to the, yeah, the, the say, first interview before we dive into the interview just to put into context joanne's success as an author uh, joanne is actually one of only a handful of british authors um that have actually successfully sold over a million copies of one of their novels and that list includes jk rowling obviously uh helen fielding who wrote the bridget jones diary and kate moss who wrote labyrinth so we are Really, really excited to have Joanne on the podcast. And uh, I, I think we're going to learn some really interesting things. And uh, after after we played the interview, we're going to come back and have a chat about what we picked up and how it might help you on your journey if you want to try and emulate Joanne's amazing journey and her success. Joanne Harris, lovely to speak to you today at Galantz Fest. Are you having a good festival today so far? I'm having a fabulous time. It's always fun at Galantz Fest. Now, um. Let's talk a little bit about your career, um, because well, I've been I've been looking back at it because it's it's quite amazing. You your first book came out when you were twenty three years old. Is that correct? I can't remember how old I was, but it seems like a long time ago. Anyway, okay, right. And had you always wanted to be a writer? Well, I'd always written, um, but you know, I'd been kind of convinced by various people that writing wasn't a proper job and you couldn't make a living doing it. And so a lot of my writing was done by stealth and nobody knew much about it. And were you always writing as you were a child? Is that something that that you did get the bug quite early? Always, yes. I realised that not all the stories that I wanted to read had been written or some of them had been written incorrectly. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, I'll rewrite them. I'll change stuff. I'll invent my own things. Now, your first book was The Evil Seed. It was. It was a vampire novel. It was written mostly to annoy my mother, who, who <laughs> disapproved of horror immensely and, and who wouldn't allow it in the house. And how? what was your feeling when you first got published? I mean, was it... Was it because it was quite a different industry back then. It was the, Everything seems to be an event these days. Was it something that kind of snuck out or was it something that... that sort of- oh, well, there was no budget. There was no promotion of any sort. I was still teaching full-time. Um, so, yeah, the budget was like a book of stamps. Um, we used to have those in those days. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just... But I, it was unadulterated joy for me. I didn't do a single signing. I didn't do anything like that. But just the fact that it was there on the shelves. I used to go to the one bookshop in my town where I, the book was on sale. There was one copy. And I would hang around to see if it had been sold. And I'd move it around and put it on shelves so you could see the, the rather bad cover. Um, and the bookshop owner kept staring at me. And I assumed it was because he recognised me, but actually he thought I was stealing books. <laughs> I used to be a bookseller. We used to have authors like you in all the time, so don't worry. It's, uh, it's well known. Your <laughs> second book was Sleep, Pale Sister. What can you tell us about that? Well, I hadn't really found my voice until my third book. And, and The Evil Seed was a sort of gothic horror pastiche with vampires. And the second one was a sort of Wilkie Collins ripoff in, in I think, five first-person narrator voices. And it was it was good practice in many ways, but it wasn't really my voice. I was still kind of trying different voices out, which I think is is a good thing for a young author to do. Young authors don't always have a voice of their own. 
And writing fanfic and writing pastiches of other things is sometimes a very good way of doing it. And so it was a kind of, it was a better novel than The Evil Seed. And it was it was very ambitious in scope. It was it was all about, you know, it was a ghost story set in the world of pre-Raphaelite art. But it, it wasn't quite me. And then, arguably, you really found your voice with your third book, Chocolat. And that, that must have changed everything. Well, it changed everything, but not, um, I didn't expect it to. I was told that um, it wasn't going to sell and that it was too parochial and it was too weird and it didn't fit into any conceivable category and it was about things that are out of fashion. It wasn't really the third book that I'd written, but it was it was pretty much the moment at which the industry washed its hands of me. I'd tried lots of different things and, and nothing had quite taken and then this, this weird little book uh, appeared and nobody wanted to publish it for ages. And when it eventually did get published as a sort of afterthought nobody really expected it to do that well while you were writing it did you know did you think this is different this is the one i knew it was different it wasn't quite as different to me as it might have been to readers that had followed me because i had tried a number of other things which were later published and, and rewritten but um i realized that i'd reached a kind of pivotal moment where i'd stopped writing coming-of-age novels disguised as horror stories or fantasy, and I had started to write about other things, things that were important to me, things like being a parent and where I'd come from and my family and where they'd come from. And so I think I'd stopped looking inwards as much as, as I'd started looking outwards. And how did it change your life after that? In turn, not just your life, but your career. Did, were, were, was it, you know, did you... Did you get people picking up the phone that maybe didn't talk to you before? Or, or, or... Oh, I'd never had anyone pick up the phone before. <laughs> um, before that, I'd had basically one fan letter from a woman in Pinner who had <laughs> signed it from herself and all her cats. And that was, as far as I know, the only reader I had. Um, you know, I, I had what they called a cult following, which meant that I was largely unread. And all of a sudden with Chocolat, I was expected to do signings and tour. And, and there was a promotion budget. And I realized that I couldn't teach full time anymore. So I took some time off um, to see what happened. And I have never gone back. Fantastic. I think for a lot of aspiring writers, that's that's the dream to become a full time writer. Were you were you prepared for it? Was there anything about it that 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 shocked you having to write full time? Oh, I wasn't remotely prepared for it. I wasn't prepared for any part of it. I wasn't prepared for the amount of free time I would suddenly have on my hands and which I spent mostly watching Doctor Who and making toast. Fantastic. I wasn't prepared for the <laughs> amount of scrutiny that I was going to get from the press. I was completely incapable of dealing with that. And of course, when the movie came out and it came out very quickly mm. after the book, it came out, you know, just over a year after the book. The book had already been a bestseller and I thought I was dealing with that. And then the movie came out and it was just completely crazy because I was having to deal with it all over again on a much bigger scale. And it was wonderful, but it was also high anxiety. And no one really trained you for that kind of success, do they? Nobody ever does train you for success because most of the time what they try to do is prepare you for failure. Mm. Nobody prepares you for success because nobody really believes that it's going to happen on that scale that quickly. And so I was prepared to fail. That was fine. I was good at that. Um, being successful, I wasn't so good at. And so I, I, I kind of had a year of having awful panic attacks in very public places like St. James's Palace and the Oscars and things where I would just flake out like Tony Soprano <laughs> and just, just wake up lying on the floor thinking, how the hell did I get there? I got over it in, in the end. Now, 
looking back to the young Joanne Harris who wrote The Evil Seed or before that, what advice would you go back and give to her now? I'm not sure she would have listened, which is a good thing. Um, I think, you know, I wasn't thinking about being published. I wasn't thinking about having a public or, or any kind of publication deal. I was just enjoying it. And I think the thing you have to do initially is not to not to write so that you can be a writer, but just write because you love writing. If you don't love it, nobody else is going to love it anyway. And the the nebulous possibility of you ever being able to give up your day job and do it as a living is such an uncertain thing and based on so many coincidences and combinations of of luck and being in the right place at the right time that you can't be certain of that. So whatever you do, if you don't enjoy the journey, then there is really not much point in doing it. Now, Chocolat's success probably... For a lot of people, it was their first encounter with you as a writer, and it may have fixed the kind of writer that you are in their mind. So when you come along and you write something like Rune Marks, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how does that, that – what kind of reaction did you get from people for, for a book like that? Well, do you know, I've had the same reaction with all of my new books, and, and now it's like 16, 17 books down the line, and I still get it every time. And there's always somebody who goes, wow, this is a departure. Um, I've been doing different things all the time. Mm. I mean, the things that I do are linked thematically, and, and there are certain things that, that, in my view, make them not a million miles away from each other. But people who think very narrow kind of genre-based things about books tend to sometimes find it difficult when they find that I've written thrillers, that I've written, you know, fantasy books. Um, basically, what I say is live with it. This mm. is what I have done. This is what I will always do. I never promised that I would stay in one place. In fact, I pretty much promised that I wouldn't from the start, which which is why it took me such a long time to get any sort of scrutiny, because if I had continued writing vampire novels, as they wanted me to, um, I would have been put in a vampire novel box. I would have been touted as the next Anne Rice, because everybody who wrote vampire novels was at the time, and I would have been thoroughly bored. So, you know, I, I've always written kind of what I wanted to. And I've always been very lucky because I have a very loyal readership who are content to follow me into these these kind of different places without complaining too much and without saying, you know, why doesn't this one have chocolate in it? Yes. <laughs> um, can we talk about your sort of daily habit as a writer? Are, are you, a, for, for, for a start, do you write every day? I don't write every day, but I usually write every day. It kind of depends. Some days I just know it's not going to work. And I have stopped trying on those days because usually it's better if I do something else. Basically, I think that usually if I get blocked or if I am tired or if I know I'm not going to perform, it's much better me doing something different. Um, you're wonderful on social media, particularly your, your shed. Uh -huh, your shed yes. that transforms every day. And My you... shed has more fans than I do, I think, well, on Twitter. The thing is, they're wonderful stories. They're wonderful short stories. Is that like a warm-up exercise for you? Is, is that something you do to, to get into a groove? or is it... it is a bit. It, it, it started off as a kind of zen exercise yeah. where I had to concentrate on writing one sentence. And then once I'd written the first sentence, which happened to be on Twitter, then I would go off onto whatever I was doing. Um, it has Sorry. become something slightly different now. I, I write stories on Twitter and I write them as I write them. You can watch me write them. I haven't written them before. I'm not just kind of posting them on having written them initially. But it's it's helped me a lot in terms of economy of words. 
and of how sentences are constructed and has made me think about things in a way that I wouldn't have done if I didn't have a 140 ca character limit. And so that's been very helpful. And I think it's, it's actually affected my writing style outside of social media. Um, we had Gospel of Loki uh, last year, which was a big hit. Um, will we be seeing more in that, in that universe, do you think? Oh, yes. Yes, you will, because pretty much everything I've written in my fantasy genre is in that universe. It's, I mean, the Norse myths had a universe of nine worlds, which I wrote in for Rune Marks and Rune Light and the Gospel of Loki, but which I also think has expanded. Now, when I wrote Rune Marks and Rune Light, I didn't think I was going to write about actual Norse myths, and certainly not, not from Loki's point of view. But the one I'm writing now, which is basically the sequel to Gospel of Loki, is hopefully the thing that will kind of make this, this linear progression of books into a circle and make people understand that actually they were all linked. And, um, and hopefully will make sense of some of the, the kind of gaps that I have left in, in the narrative and, and people will go, oh yeah, that's what she was getting at. Um, for... We've had the, uh, the Writers' Festival was a big part of uh, Galantz Fest, and we've got lots of aspiring writers here today. Uh, what are the sort of common mistakes you see young writers making that they can easily avoid? I think sometimes I'm, I'm concerned when I see young writers worrying too much about marketing themselves or trying to analyse the market or trying to, to ride trends. I think those things are more or less irrelevant to a writer. And are probably doomed to disappointment because as soon as you've isolated a trend, it will have gone by the time you've written a book that fits it, even if that were the book you were supposed to write. So I do, I do think people worry overly about doing other jobs but their own. Um, Christopher Priest was talking about this. I think you know we we need to remain in the writer's enclave and not not to worry too much about being salesmen and marketeers and all the rest of it. Um, I hear a lot of people saying that they don't have time to read and yet they expect to write. Um, again, I think, I, I think this is completely counterintuitive. You have to read so that you can write. And I think in a lot of different genres, I see a lot of younger writers who only really read within their genre, which means that they tend to, to miss out on the opportunity for flexibility and to, to explore other kinds of, of, of narrative. Besides, you, you don't know what you're going to get from what you read until you've read it. And if everything that you read is within your comfort zone, you're not going to be able to push that comfort zone as a writer. So that, that, that would help a lot. I mean, I, my comfort zone is fiction, and I have to push myself to read outside of fiction. And whenever I do, I am surprised at how rich it is and how many ideas I get and how much those ideas then inform what I'm writing. If, um, if a writer... if you if an aspiring writer came to you and, and you only had time to give them one single tip, what would that be? Ditch the word aspiring. Sorry. It's bullshit. Just write. Don't worry too much about being a writer or the quality of what you write. Just do your best you can and be honest and, and forget about the sort of the, the, the idea that writers are special people. If you write, then you are a writer. That's fantastic. And what's next from you? Well, I have a book of um, stories which are all basically set in the same universe and have returning characters, a hundred stories, which I mostly wrote on Twitter. Um, the collection is called Honeycomb. It has a sort of overarching storyline as well as having a lot of separate little stories. Charles Vess is illustrating it, so I'm waiting for him to do his work. Fantastic. And then hopefully, um, if everything happens on time, it will be out autumn of next year. 
wonderful. Great stuff. Well, Joanna Harris, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very, very busy today. My and, pleasure. Uh, it's been fun. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. What a fascinating interview, Mark. Well, what a privilege it was to, to chat with Joanne. And yeah. there was so much that I picked up, um, quite a lot of surprises, actually. It's, it's quite fascinating to, to listen to Joanne's story. And, you know, I loved the, her honesty. I loved her, how she, she explained how, you know, she wasn't really ready for her success. And, uh, I think a couple of things that, that really jumped out for me. The first thing was about, she talked about finding her voice. And yes. that's not really something we've discovered. We've not really chatted about that in much detail uh, in any of the previous episodes, but it's obviously a very important part of writing something that feels real and authentic. And I think that any novel, bestseller or not, if you haven't found that voice, uh, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a real struggle. So I think one of the one of the crucial kind of questions that came up for me was, was Joanne said that it, it took her until her third book and she was really yeah. almost exploring the voice. Yeah, as, well, yeah. I, 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 I totally relate to that because when I when I first started writing plays, because that's, you know, I certainly when I was a kid, I, I was just aping movies I'd seen on TV. I used to write things that were just a ripoff of Star Wars and Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. But when I started writing plays, I was, you know, I loved theatre and... But my writing was a bizarre hybrid of uh, John Sullivan, who wrote Only Fools and Horses, and David Mamet, you know, <laughs> if you can imagine <laughs> such a bizarre, bizarre crossbreed. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you know, you try on other people's shoes, you know, you, you try other stuff out. Uh, and like she said, she said fanfic, you know, absolutely. And my daughter does it, you know, she, you write... Yeah. Uh, stuff you love so maybe write that Harry Potter fiction if you love that and if that helps you finish something and get to the end of something you're never going to get published but you will learn so much about structure and and how just how sentences come together and just the, the nuts and bolts of writing a novel and then eventually you'll be able to step forward and try and do something in your own voice and it is I'm you know it's taken me years to figure out what my own voice is and, and make myself feel comfortable putting it out there because it is who you are you know and yeah. I, i've the, the biggest compliment i've had is is people saying oh you know your your books they they sound like you know you're there talking to me or whatever and that mm. that that feels great that's that means i i finally kind of figured it out do you know if i'm trying to think of a, a an analogy and what comes up for me is it's almost like in some ways having a wardrobe of clothing and sometimes you have to put on a suit and sometimes you have to wear a, yeah. a ball gown or a, you know, a, a you the, speak for yourself. The, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> only, only on Sunday nights, but, uh, but it's this idea that sometimes you feel constricted within certain clothing, like you're on show or it doesn't feel very natural. And, Finding your voice to me sounds like finding that pair of, pair of jeans, that pair of shoes and that T-shirt or shirt that you just love. And, you know, be, being a guy, I mean, this is we, we whatever amount of clothes we have, we always pretty much wear the same thing over and over again. And so maybe finding the voice for an author is that kind of comfortable feeling of stepping into the shoes and putting on that pair of jeans that you just feel is you and it's not trying to be anything else other than That's, what you feel very true once i discovered plaid shirts at fat face and blue jeans that was it i'm never wearing anything else <laughs> <laughs> Actually, but what was what, interesting is is the book that where she did find her voice with chocolat it was the book that she was saying she was told it wasn't going to sell it didn't fit in but she knew it was different and she wasn't chasing the market she was like sod them i'm gonna write what i love mm. and once she did that 
there obviously there was something in it her voice that resonated with people and suddenly she's selling a million copies and johnny depp is starring in your movie absolutely i think there's definitely a case of, of uh when you when you become authentic and you believe in what you're doing you have to have that uh, sense of almost stubbornness of knowing that this is what you want to do and you've got to march forward and even if other people are telling you that it's i mean she said for example it you know it wouldn't sell it didn't fit and the point is is that we always hear this over and over again about don't write for what's in current fashion because you'll miss it and yet yeah. at the same time you're saying yes but it doesn't fit so there's this kind of conflicting story of of what is in and what people are looking for and, and should you write for the market or should you write from the heart and write what you feel is important and it sounds like joanne really did that and it and it obviously paid off because whatever the magic that ha what that happened in amongst all of those things it really connected with the readers and then obviously connected with the viewers of of, of chocolat that became a huge success as a film didn't it yeah i guess there must be a, a certain element of luck there in that your voice, just as you hit your stride, also happens to capture, you know, the zeitgeist, what, what people suddenly want. But that said, Chocolat is still a book that sells now. Uh, it's still core stock for any bookseller. And it's still selling on and on and on. So she's obviously tapped into themes in that book that still chime with people all these years later. Mm. Uh, so, so you know, I mean, going back to our original podcast where suddenly we were worried we might have to write a Gone Girl style thriller because that's what was selling or we would have to, you know, write in a voice that might not be familiar to us. It's becoming clear we don't have to do that. All we have to do is capture the universal zeitgeist <laughs> in a bottle <laughs> and, and appeal to everyone in the English speaking world, which, you know, is a doddle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think what it does come back to, though, one of the things that I've I'm discovering through this journey, but also through I've done a lot of public speaking and, and how do you connect with the audience through a story? And for me, it, it always comes back to this idea of a universal theme. And I think that, you know, if you kind of put that at the core of what you're doing, uh, even though, you know, for example, you know, zombie apocalypse isn't, isn't, a, you know, something everyone can associate with, if anyone, but what happens around that, you know, the idea of, of saving your loved ones or going on a heroic mission, uh, you know, all of these things are, are human universal themes that we've all experienced to some level or other during our lives, even from, you know, you know, young kids. So I think that's key. I think that's key. If, if you want to really reach a large audience, the more universal themes that you touch on or the core universal theme you touch on will really help to connect emotionally with the reader. But there's yeah. one other thing I just wanted to throw back, Mark, because she mentioned about fanfic, and I know that that's a, you know, kind of a, a buzzword. And, and for people that don't know, and I, this is my understanding of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but fanfic stands for fan fiction. And it's the idea that somebody who loves, say, a Twilight novel or a, uh, a Harry Potter novel actually writes a, a version of it or a different, a different outcome. Yeah, is they, that right? They write a story set in that universe, fan fiction. I mean, it, it's been around for years, you know. I mean, people have always aped other writers and, you know, you've uh, perhaps most commonly you, you have writers who will write Sherlock Holmes stories, for example, you know, that, mm. that's something that's been going on for years or they, they might attempt to write in the style of Dickens or take Dick. I mean, there was a, 
there was a TV series recently which had all the characters from Dickens, but you know, in in the same locale, and you'd see Fagin in the pub next to, and I can't think of a single other Dickens character at the moment. But you know, they people from different Dickens novels interacting, or you know, you, you Star Wars does it like. In fact, the uh, Lucasfilm did a great thing where they said, you know, what you can write any fan fiction you want, just you know don't make any money from it uh star trek fans have been doing it for years as well mm. where and and very often they, they they they'll take a path that maybe the main story doesn't take so with star wars fan fiction you might take a minor character who maybe only has one line in the films and and follow them for a day and then take them on an adventure you know so mm. uh, and you know you can share it on things like wattpad or whatever and you know share with friends and get feedback and I guess it's a way of because a big chunk of writing is also world building and creating a universe. And if there's one already there waiting for you, and if you're familiar with it, then yeah, step on in, have a play. You're never going to make any money from it, but you you could improve as a writer. I mean, famously, E.L. James, who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, that started as Twilight fan fiction. That's what I heard. I heard that she wrote the book with all the characters of Twilight and then ended up kind of changing the names. Is that right? And then it it kind of took off. So, so a bestseller can actually come out of fan fiction, but when would somebody choose to write fan fiction rather than write say an original book? To, to uh, imagine you've never written a book before, Mark. (laughs) I know you've started several, (laughs) but imagine you've never put pen to paper before. And it's a very intimidating prospect. And, you know, we talked about it being this big monolithic thing that everyone's terrified of. Um, And if you just want to, you know, if if you're familiar with the universe and you can just slip on in there and have some fun, you know, and it takes the weight off the creation side of things. It takes the weight off of that. And it's I think it's a good way. To practice, you find it with screenwriters as well. A lot uh, less so these days, but you used to find a lot in the eighties and nineties. Screenwriters would write uh, an episode of Cheers on spec, send it to the makers of Cheers. Famously, Star Trek: The Next Generation would take spec scripts. So, if you were a big Star Trek nerd and you had an idea for an episode, you would write it on spec, send it to Paramount, and there were a couple that were actually made wow. from people who, you know, who were not established screenwriters but loved Star Trek, were passionate about it, wrote wrote a particular kind of story, and they got made. So, you know, I'm so, not saying that's going to happen to your novel, but, well, you know, but J.K. Rowling is not going to say, oh, you know what, you've written a much better ninth Harry Potter <laughs> than I have. So That's so. really interesting. I think it is worth worth mentioning if you're listening to this and you've heard our challenge that obviously we're on of trying to write this novel in in 52 weeks and publish it and encouraging people to to join us on this journey and if you've been listening to us and you've been enjoying the shows but you haven't actually decided to to take part there is an opportunity for you right now instead of you know if you weren't aren't don't feel ready to write a book you don't think you're ready to write a book then pick maybe one of your favorite novels and maybe start by rewriting the ending make make it the ending you always wanted or or write a fan fiction of one of your favorite novels because that in itself could be a very valuable exercise just to get writing, but you just never know. I mean, just like you mentioned with the L. James, I mean, you know, that, that became one of the biggest, really more biggest selling she, series. Of she books, wrote so. the first drafts of that on her Blackberry. Wow. 
That's crazy. Yeah, you know, so no excuses, people. Get on. Yeah. With it. <laughs> so, so get get along to the Facebook uh, the bestseller experiment Facebook page, and tell us if you are now inspired to try writing uh, a fan fiction, and tell us what what book you're writing it on. So share with us, and we'll, we'll we'll maybe share a couple of the ones that come up on future episodes of of the podcast. And also share with us if you write Twitter fiction. Now, one thing I should explain is um, uh, I was talking to Joanne about her shed. Now, if you follow Joanne Harris on Twitter, and you should, she is uh, at Joanne Chocolat. Uh, there are mornings where she will say, because she writes famously in her shed, she's got a wonderful shed, she, she will say, today the shed is a ship on the ocean uh, with a pirate captain and we're headed. And she will just spin off a story, a magnificent mm. story in a series of tweets that, as she said, she it started as a kind of Zen exercise. And now people have come to expect free stories from her every day. Brilliant. But, you know, she's... Uh, it's 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 a fantastic exercise. If you think you can you can do that, you can share your stories on Twitter. And she said that it's affected the way that she writes her regular fiction. Um, then maybe that's an exercise worth trying. Has there been a bestseller that's come out of Twitter yet that you're aware of? Uh, I don't think so. It's interesting. There are lots of um, actually. I, I guess so. I mean, the, the famous one was um, "Shit, my dad says." which was that Twitter account about this guy who just tweeted the things that his dad said when he was watching TV. And it was hilarious. And it was a nonfiction bestseller. And there have been quite a few of those where people have, um, you know, hit a groove, hit, get a great idea and tweet, 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 tweet. And then eventually a publisher comes on and says, you know, we'll make a book of those. And I always wondered if, if because we had a few come in the office and they said, we should pitch for this. And I was like, but you can get this on Twitter for free. Uh, but people still people still buy the book because it's all in one place. It does form some kind of narrative. Uh, and, of course, the one that everyone is talking about now is My Dad Wrote a Porno, which is uh, not to plug someone else's podcast, but it's, uh, it's the top podcast on iTunes at the moment, about a guy who's discovered that his dad has written an erotic um a novel on Kindle called Belinda Blinked. <laughs> and uh, every week he and his friends read a chapter and then just crack up and analyse. And it, it's quite instructional. If you want to be a writer, it's quite instructional on how not to do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's filthy. It's absolutely filthy because it's a pornographic, erotic novel, but it's just hilarious. Oh. And that they're bringing a book of that out soon, basically – Belinda blinked the novel, but with their annotations, and it looks hilarious. So, yeah, there's lots of good fiction coming out of Twitter, actually. Now, I think That's about it. Fantastic. So, what some of the other things that Joanna mentioned, which which jumped out for me, were um, I mean, the first thing was how she said she wasn't trained for success, but she was, you know, they, she was more prepared for failure. And I found that really interesting. I think there is a, I have this, this is a big, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about, about this whole thing and that. Um, well, that's the British education system. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Well, no, it's not. I mean, I think it's, I think it's education worldwide. It's even being parents. We tend to always, or, and teachers, it's always about catching kids doing things wrong and no, don't do that. Put that down. And, and there's, we, don't we, get your hopes up don't get your hopes yeah. up and you know oh you'll never become anything and there's there's so much negativity um in in the lives of us growing up that it's when people become par- uh, adults it's very difficult for them to unravel a lot of the 
things that they've been told as kids. And I live in this world where I believe anything's possible. And I try, you know, hence doing this in crazy, crazy project. But, you know, in other things that I've done in my life, it's been, I've always gone for the idea of doing something crazy just to see, just to see if it's possible. And I think it's a very, a very specific thing that Joanne brought up, which was that uh, when we hit brick walls in our journey, if we're writers or musicians or whatever it is that we do, often that voice, you know, that self-saboteur jumps out and tells us uh, that we're always destined for failure and we were never going to become anything. And it's interesting just to say about how she had to spend a year of her life kind of getting used to this idea of success. And then when the film came out, she had to go through it all again. And yeah. I loved her openness about, you know, the anxiety. But it's just that introspection that I think everyone, you know, I feel as well as important for each author to, to think about how much of the self-saboteur that an, an author has in their head telling, oh, this is absolute rubbish. No one's ever going to like this. How much of that is actually other people's voices that we've picked up yeah. over the years and and we need to kind of close those voices down and what's remarkable about joanne is she could have taken a very easy path and continued writing as she says you know vampire novels that weren't her voice mm. and you do often see you know that you'll see best-selling authors and i won't name any names but there are authors who do seem to write the same book every single time because that's what's expected of them. And I think it's kudos to, to Joanne for not doing that, for writing something different. We talked about her book, Rune Marks, which was the first sort of Norse legend book that she wrote. And this is off the back of books like Chocolat, which are contemporary literature with a kind of romantic story in them uh, and you know, stories about family. And now suddenly she's writing about Norse gods. And you just have to look at some of the reviews on Amazon with people going, oh, this isn't my sort of thing. I, well, I'm not going to read this. Well, uh, <laughs> But, you know, anything, okay, well, fair enough, isn't it? if it's not your kind of thing, but it's what she wants to do. And yeah, she only has one career. She only has one life. And if that's what, that's what she's passionate about, then that's what she should write. And it is quite, in some ways it's, it, I think it's fantastic that she, you know, maybe it's because of the, that focus that she has on and being authentic and doing what she wants that has, has kept her at the top of her, you know, the, the top of the charts for so long. But I also think that, um, a lot of people listening might be thinking, oh, it's such a high risk. Because if you know that something's worked, there is the temptation. And I know this from a music perspective when we had kind of charts, hits and things. Is there is a temptation to to keep the template and, you know, tweak a few things, but keep the Do formula. The yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it's a hard one because if, you, uh, if you're trying to balance the idea of building a career as an author, full-time author who can, you know, spend their life writing in their shed or wherever it is, uh, there's always that risk that if you, if you veer, veer, veer too far away from what people loved, then you can alienate the, the core audience. But it sounds like Joanne's got this wonderfully loyal following who actually love the fact that she's willing to to go with wherever she feels is the next right place for her. And, and that's incredible. I mean, all kudos for her for doing that. Yeah, I mean, she, and not all of them have come with her, like I said, but she has found a new market. And that's where things like Glance Fest are important because you get people who love genre, you know, science fiction, fantasy who come along and discover her and then may go back and read her earlier books, the kind of people who might not have even read Chocolat, mm. you know, who go back and discover it. But it's interesting. I think all the artists I admire and, and, and you know, 
talking about music here in particular, you know, the Kate Bushes, the David Bowies, the Pink Floyds, the Beatles, they didn't really repeat themselves. They kept moving forward and moving forward and doing something different, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot to be said because it's the only way you can progress as as an artist is to try. And you are going to upset people. You're going to, you know, people do want the same but different. Uh, Yeah, but not that different You can get stuck in a rut. No. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's that saying in music that if you're you're writing a song, it's you you do – you do something different, but not that different so that you, you don't go too extreme because then people, it kind of rocks the boat so much that um, nobody knows really what it's, what, what, what you're doing and, and what you're following. But um, having that difference, but keeping it within the sphere of comfort, if you like. Um, but then in that way, that's maybe where books are very different from music. I think, I think books, you know, you can yeah. write a completely different chart. Like you wouldn't, for example, as a, you know, you'd never hear David Bowie go, go from one album where he was doing say some mainstream kind of pop and then try death metal. <laughs> you wouldn't get that. Actually you would. I mean, if you listen to, uh, you know, something like Tim Machine, which came along is, uh, you know, the Beatles, you know, they, 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 they're singing, uh, we love you, uh, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, one minute, and then tomorrow never knows, you know, mm. and it's like, whoa. So I, I think, again, it's not completely analogous because it's, it's music. Uh, so, but maybe, you know, if you're right, you can experiment with short stories or whatever, but it's, um, I think, you know, it, it behooves you. There's a word again. Behooves you as an artist to 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 try something a bit a bit daring, a bit different. Well, also if you, you don't, know. I guess you never know. You know, if you get success in one particular genre, could that be your genre, or could it actually be that that's just the beginning, and, and your main success or even bigger success could come in another genre? And I guess if you don't broaden your options or try something completely different you'll never actually know so there's always there's that risk of staying within the box as well which yeah. is very interesting yeah yeah i mean it has to be something you love and you know talking to uh shannon uh last time you know it's clear that she's very passionate about the genre that she writes for um but you know she's always she's not writing the same thing again and again and again because again her fans would would pick her up on that i think absolutely so on the, on the note of the film Chocolat, we have a question that came through um, on our email for question of the week. And it's kind of, it kind of fits quite nicely with the fact that obviously Joanne's book then became a very big selling film. And, and something actually, it's really interesting. And I love this question because I really wanted to ask it to you as well, being someone who writes scripts as well as novels. And so James from London with thank you so much for this question. And the question mark is, is, should you start writing a script for a film and then write the book? Or is it best to work the other way around if you have a vision of wanting it to become eventually a movie? Well, I think Juliet sort of answered this a couple of weeks ago, which is she said, do, you know, just focus on one thing. And so I'm always saying to my kids, you know, they do one thing properly or several things badly. You know, my, my kids will be, you know, the, my son will try and brush his teeth while watching YouTube videos on his phone. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm, I'm multitasking. You know? <laughs> my son actually dropped, my son actually dropped uh, my wife's uh, iPod down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and tried to fish it out with a coat hanger. Because he so wouldn't the put me- his hand in. <laughs> <laughs> so the metaphor is don't drop your, don't drop your book in the toilet. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think I think it's right to, um, and they're very different things to write. You know, a, a, a book, 
you usually have a finish line. You know, you, you get to a point where you've written your book, you've written several drafts, your editor's gone through it, your proofreader, your copy editor, and it's finished and it goes out to the world and people get to read it. Screenwriting is, as far as I know, the only written art form where your work is never read by the public at the end of it. It's read by the actors and the production team and everyone on the film. But, you know, apart from nerdy screenwriters like me, no one's going to sit down and read your script after sitting and watching, you know, 90 minutes of your film. And your script is never really finished. It becomes something different. It goes from being sheets of paper to storyboards, you know, to a finished, you know, to scenes uh, on a... on a camera, you know, on, on a, not on film anymore, but on digital usually, then it becomes assembled into a film. And then it becomes the mistake. A lot of first time filmmakers make is, you know, they'll see the first assembly of the film and they'll say, Oh, but that scene is, is different to what I wrote. Let, let me look, have a look at the script here. It's different. And the directors and producers will go, it's a film now. It's something completely different. And and you are constantly, they say you write your film three times. You know, you write it on paper, you write it while you're shooting, and you write it in post-production. And all through that process, you are rewriting, 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 rewriting. And you've got other people poking their noses in all the way through, you know, making changes, actors, mm. producers, making suggestions. You know, you get a lot more either collaboration or interference, depending on who you're working with. (laughs) For me, I've been very lucky. It's always very collaborative and very positive. Uh, But you hear horror stories from from other, you know, writers who've been locked out of the edit suite and stuff Mm. like that. Um, In a a nutshell, Mark, I was just going to ask, though, a burning question is, could there be, or do you know anyone that's ever done this, where they've written a script, like a a screenplay, as a way of plotting out their dialogue and their plot for their book and then purely doing it as an exercise to then have this kind of uh, timeline of events with a lot of the dialogue already kind of worked out? Um, Not that I'm aware of. I mean, Emma Donoghue, who wrote the book Room, while she was working on the edit for the book, wrote the screenplay. So when Hollywood came knocking at her door, normally the author is the last person who should probably write that book because they're so attached to it and they don't make compromises and, oh, my, they, mm. we can't lose that character, we can't lose that scene. Whereas for the purposes of film, sometimes you just have to do that. She had it ready and it was absolutely fantastic. Wow. Uh, Gillian Flynn as well. I mean, Gillian wrote Gone Girl, but she's, uh, she's been a you know, TV writer previously, I think. Um so, you know, she did a fantastic job of adapting her own book for film. So it does happen, but I don't know if anyone's done... Because a script just isn't dialogue. This is something I hear a lot. People say, oh, that was a... The script was so corny. What they mean is the dialogue was so corny. Right. You know, uh, a script is not just dialogue. There's so much that goes into a script that's... You know, it may only be 90 or 100 pages, and on the page it's far fewer words than you have in a novel. But I've spent... I spent four or five years writing Robot Overlords, much longer than I've spent writing any novel. More words written for that than any novel I've ever written. A, because there's so much world building on it. You know, we were talking about 
how the robots worked, you know, why they were here. And all that stuff we kind of swept under the carpet. John and I knew how it worked, but you don't want to bore the reader with this. Again, going back to what Juliet said about, you know, historical authors will do their research and dagnam it. They're going to make sure you know it. You know, <laughs> we, we, we weren't going to bog the story because it's a kid's film. You don't want to bog the story down with all that detail, but we knew how, we knew how the light stayed on, how the water was, you know, how people got food, all of that. Uh, and just making, making sure that universe worked. Um, and that's a whole other that's a whole other um, episode, I think, isn't it? Because as you hear about people that go into such huge detail of learning about their characters' background and the backstory and the traits, and uh, absolutely, I, I think I think certainly more detail. I think, yeah, certainly your main characters, you need to get to know them like friends. You need to get to the point where you know exactly what they're going to say in any given situation. They'll, they'll still surprise you um, if they're any good. I think, but yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's it's some. There's a lot of, uh, it's, you know, it's like a duck on a pond, you know, it looks calm underneath, but its little legs are paddling underneath. <laughs> and uh, that's what it should be like. And, and people shouldn't be aware of all the, uh, of, of all the paddling underneath. They just want to sit back and enjoy a good story. Excellent, excellent stuff. So two episodes ago, I was trying to convince Mark to move from Slate and Chalk for writing this novel on. Or what? Apple and Pages. Apple and Pages. <laughs> Apple, Apple and Pages. pages. And Apple and Pages a day. Apple and Pages a day. Keeps Word, MS Word away. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with chalk and slate. Don't knock it. I know. Um, but I'm quite enjoying Scrivener. Actually, it's good. I like the uh, the corkboard stuff, which is great, where you can put your little yeah. beat story beats up there, and it's like pinning uh, things onto a board and being able to share that and looking at the story beats and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I'm getting into a groove with this finally. And I've, cool. I've only just only you're only just starting to scratch the surface. That corkboard feature is fantastic because Mark and I are in the stage of kind of starting to plot out the parts of our novel, and we're using the corkboard to. Um, put down the main beats or scenes as well of our novel and we, then we can move things around. But what I love about it is when you double click on one of the cards, you then have all of the more detailed information. So you can kind of drill down and it's not all kind of a massive, one massive document. Oh, and you know, do you know, the way we're banging on about this, we should probably approach Scrivener for sponsorship. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, uh, I don't do anything for free, as you know. <laughs> I'm being paid for this podcast, right? I haven't had any money from you yet, but I'm, uh, I quit my day job. Did I mention that? <laughs> he lies. Don't, it's listeners, all lies. Don't, don't quit your day job, seriously. No, I, I think I'm going to approach, I think I'm going to approach Scrivener because I've been banging on about them. I think, I think they should sponsor this show. <laughs> so Scrivener, if you're out there, expect a phone call. So we're going to be wrapping up this podcast very shortly. And I think before we finish off, I just wanted to, I was just inspired by, what Joanne was saying um, about this being prepared for failure. Uh, and I'd like to do a quick motivational minute on that because I think this is huge. I think this is huge. As a coach, I see this all the time. So I'm going to do my, you ready to start the clock, Mark? One minute motivation. Three, two, one, rock. All right. So when you are a child, you are told not to do stuff and you are told to give up on your dreams. And I see so often as a coach, that is the number one biggest block to people succeeding. And succeeding success could mean just finishing the book. It doesn't necessarily mean publishing it or even becoming a bestseller. Succeeding means you know whatever specific goal you have today that you want to create. And I want you to observe over the next minute, over the next minute and over the next week, as you write, as you 
take part in whatever it is you're doing, any goals and dreams you have, listen out for that self-sabotage voice that pops into your head and tells you that you're not good enough, the writing's not working, it's never going to happen, and you should just give up on your dreams. Because that one tiny voice is the biggest destroyer of dreams. And I see it time and time again. But you can actually observe that voice and you can start to tell it to be quiet. It's not about getting rid of it. It's a practice every single day, almost like a Zen practice. Get that voice to just quieten down, turn down the volume on it and observe when it talks and don't listen to it like it's you speaking. It's an exceptionally different voice to who you are. And the more aware you become that it's separate, it's something that's trying to squish you down and kill your dreams, the more you will be able to start to tell it that, you know, I don't want to have this conversation right now. And you can tell it to go and take a hike. So that voice that didn't prepare Joanne for, uh, was more of a preparation for Joanne for failure. That is a voice we all have. Every single person has it. And it's just about quietening it every day. And once you get that voice quiet, then your world can really open up. So that, that voice that's telling me this whole project will be a complete car crash, I, I shouldn't be listening to him. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> He's quite loud, Mark. It's, quite I know. Just... Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. You know, I said everyone has that voice. And as a coach, I get, to, I get very privileged to listen to people's stories every time we, we have. And we're actually all storytellers, incredibly good storytellers when it comes to telling ourselves how we can't do something and how we're going to fail. So take that incredible storytelling and turn it around for the better. And uh, yeah, it is. It's so true, though. It's it's incredible how many people um, have got in the way of their own dreams and their own success because of all those things they were told when they were younger, which we replay in our heads like a tape recorder, actually. This science was proven that we, it's like we, everything up to the age of six is recorded like it was recorded on a tape recorder. And then when we get to six years of age, we rewind and play it like a loop, sometimes for the rest of our life, which explains why some people, you know, in the 80s and 90s are still dealing with issues which you think, you know, you've had like 80 years to work this out and still, <laughs> you know, it, it's something which everyone else can see is, is, a, is a, a major thing which brings, brings that person down. So um, it's big for writing because I think, you know, the creative muse and that voice can be very, very loud, like a megaphone for some people. Yeah, and as a writer, you're often crippled with doubt as well. You're often, you know, the, the, you'll always think... Uh, the, there isn't a single writer I know out there who hasn't at one time thought... I feel like a complete fraud. Someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and tell me you're out. Come on, you're out the club. Exactly. You know, so. Yeah. But no, keep positive. Speaking of positive thinking, um, we should tell our listeners that uh, we finally have an idea. We're not going to reveal what it is, but we've been Ooh. bouncing ideas back and forth for a story. We're very excited about it, having taken on some of the advice of the, the previous uh, guests who have been all fantastic. So with the the boulder is rolling, uh, and like Indiana Jones, we're running in front of it, trying <laughs> not to fall flat on our faces. So, you know, it's uh, we're, we're off. And, uh, right. you know, to, to take... Um, Joanne Harris's wide word, wise words. We are going to ditch the word aspiring. It's bullshit. Uh, we are off. We are writers. We are writing. We're exchanging words. So here we go. Absolutely. Watch this space. And yeah. we would love you to get involved as well. We're hoping that we're inspiring you to show you anything is possible. And, and know if you go for it, join us. You've got a great excuse, 52 weeks to get that novel written maybe even publish it. We want to see at least one massive success come out of this podcast and celebrate with you if it's you. So come along, join us at the mailing list on bestsellerexperiment.com 
And remember also to come and download the latest update of the bestseller experiment ebook, which we're giving away during the 52 weeks that we're doing this podcast. And then Mark Apley named it the Vault of Gold. The Writer's Vault of Gold. And we're So like Indiana Jones, you can, you can run out of the tomb with the Vault of Gold in your hand. And even if we get squashed and by the giant boulder, hopefully you will cross the finish line and get a bestseller. Or well, maybe we uh, can get in the so, way of the boulder for everyone else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll take one for the team. Uh, so we're no. on Facebook with uh, Bestseller Experiment. We're on Twitter at Bestseller XP. Uh, Mark and I are on Twitter too. I'm an at Mark Stay, and Mr. DeVoe is at 4000 Saturdays, 4000 Saturdays. And please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. That sort of stuff makes all the difference. Absolutely. And we want to just say thank you so much to Joanne Harris for being part of the podcast today. Absolutely privileged to have her on the show. And that leaves us just to wish you an incredible week writing living your dreams as we all hope to and it's a goodbye from mark one and goodbye from mark two goodbye see you guys <laughs>